Whenever we read an exciting book or watch a thrilling movie, we look forward to its captivating and surprising conclusion. For some books or movies, you can pretty well guess what's going to happen. My wife likes to watch that kind of TV show. She doesn't like suspense. But how much better for most of us it is to have an unexpected conclusion. God concludes his Bible with an exciting and unexpected conclusion. Or another word for that is consummation. Consummation. Of course, this final chapter is in the book of Revelation. Many do not realize that this book is the terminus of all the great Bible prophecies. And it's based on its earlier description. Some people think it ends in apocalypse. Meaning, in their mind, they think the word apocalypse means the end of the world. This is popular in media of all kinds. But, however, that's not what apocalypse means. Even so, many do not read the book of Revelation because they find it too dramatic, even terrifying, with all its strange symbols, war and destruction. And that's regrettable because the book was intended to uplift, to motivate and to encourage God's people in tough times. If readers understood its genre of biblical literature, if they understood the history of the times of the author, human author, and if they understood God's purpose behind the book, they would find it truly an inspiring read. With a little bit of study and a lot of prayer, God's people can come to understand this seemingly mystical book. In fact, God intended it to be read and understood, as we will see in this message. So this sermon will not be an exposition of the entire book of Revelation. Rather, it will bring together certain prophetic themes to a consummation. God's telos, the Greek word telos, T-E-L-O-S, means his aim, his ultimate end, goal, and purpose for humankind and the restoration of all things. We will explore the central themes of prophecy to recognize that God weaves them together in this final book of our Bible. The title of this sermon is The Consummation of Biblical Prophecy. The Consummation of Biblical Prophecy. Let me introduce the book of Revelation a little bit before we get started into the study. Just as Genesis is the book of beginnings, Revelation is the book of consummation. The divine program of redemption is brought to fruition in this final book, and the holy name of God is vindicated before all creation. Although there are numerous prophecies in the Gospels, in Paul's epistles, Revelation is the only New Testament book that focuses primarily on prophetic events. Its title, Revelation, means unveiling, not end of the world. Unveiling or disclosure. Thus, the book is an unveiling of the character and program of God. It was penned by John the Apostle during his exile on an island off the western Turkey coast called Patmos. Revelation centers on visions and symbols of the resurrected Christ, who alone has authority to judge the earth, to remake it, and to rule it in righteousness. The book is incorrectly called the Revelation of St. John the Divine. Many older Bibles had that title. But if we go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, we have the title in the opening words. So let's go to Revelation 1 and verse 1. Revelation 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. All right? That is how it opens, and that is what it's called. 
It is Jesus Christ's revelation. Now, was that from Christ or a revelation about Christ? Well, both are appropriate, so we'll not quibble over the matter. But because of the unified contents of this book, it should not be called the book of revelations. It is one book, unified together. So this book is the unveiling of God's future plan for the earth and the redeemed saints, both for time and eternity. And it's necessary to view the book as in no sense sealed. Remember Daniel was told to seal up the book till the time of the end. But as we go to chapter 22, verse 10, Revelation has a different message from God. Revelation 22, verse 10. 22, 10, he says to me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. So the book is in no sense sealed for another time. It is now open to our understanding. And there's a distinct blessing, as we will see later, for the person who reads and who hears the words of this prophecy. So the Greek word behind Revelation is apocalypsis. Apocalypsis from which we get our word apocalypse. Apocalypse is another word for this final book. And again, all it means is unveiling, pulling back back of a veil, unveiling or disclosure or revelation. So the book is an unveiling of that which otherwise could not be known. It was hidden to the world, but now is revealed to God's people. But where did our English word revelation come from? Well, its origin is Latin, revelatio, which as well means an unveiling, an unveiling. And that in turn is the translation from the Greek apocalypsis, the removing of a veil. So contrary to popular usage, the word apocalypse does not mean the end of the world. I mentioned that in my classes that I teach up in Charlotte. And I remember last year uh, when students listed ten things I learned from this lesson or that lesson. That was one of the things the students, that it struck them, that it doesn't mean the end of the world. It's been a misunderstanding that so many have had over the years. So it is thus a book written to be understood. It is incorrect to say that God does not intend this book to be understood or that the symbolism and figures of the prophecy are incomprehensible. And I refer you to our several booklets available online or in print on the book of Revelation. This book's central message was meant to be understood. Some of the first literature I ordered from God's church in 1967 and 8 had to do with this final book. And I was amazed by what I found in it. So as an overview of the book, it's the only fully prophetic book in the New Testament written to Christians in the first century in western Turkey, the Roman province of Asia, suffering persecution. Persecution from the Roman authorities, most likely under the reign of Roman Emperor Domitian. Domitian. Revelation also classifies as biblical apocalyptic. More on that in a minute, but we have to specify this is a type of genre a little bit different from general apocalyptic. It is biblical apocalyptic because it contains visions of a future and a heavenly reality. So it takes its name and its place, rather, in the canon of Scripture, along Old Testament books that have apocalyptic genre like Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah. However, this apocalypse was written in light of Christ's death and resurrection, bringing hope to God's people through harsh harsh persecution. His death and resurrection transformed prophecy and brought hope to God's people that God's program was still on schedule, that God had not abandoned 
the many prophecies he gave to his people throughout the centuries. So let's talk about the occasion and the date of this book. The human author was Saint, uh, sorry, John the Beloved. Again, when you go back to Revelation 1, verse 1, Revelation 1, 1, sometimes called Saint John, but if you understand how the Bible uses the word saint, it just means one of God's people who are set apart. But Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants things which must shortly come to pass. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Now, which John? Well, the evidence points to John the Apostle. The evidence that we have from the second century, that this is extra-biblical tradition from the second century, is that around 70 A.D., when Rome, when Jerusalem fell to the Romans and was destroyed, John moved to western Turkey to become kind of a circuit minister, a regional pastor for all the churches that have been raised up by Paul and others. And this is only a few years after the death of Paul by the hands of the Roman Emperor Nero, late 60s A.D. Only a few years later, John as Jerusalem is collapsed and destroyed, moves to this area, as far as we can figure, to take care of the seven churches that are named in this book and the other churches of the time. There were churches all across the Middle East by that point. But at the end of the first century, about 20-some years later, the Roman government began to insist that its citizens worship the emperor, Emperor Domitian. And because of that, because John would not do that, he was exiled to a penal colony called Patmos, where as an old man, perhaps in his 90s, he was confined in some kind of an imprisonment. We read from Eusebius, 2nd century, this occurred in the 15th year of Domitian's reign. And the 2nd century teacher Irenaeus, who was a student of Polycarp, uh, it says the same thing, that John was banished in the late 90s A.D. So a good ballpark figure around eight, in A.D. 95 or 96 is when John is exiled and receives this revelation from God to write to his seven churches that he's pastoring. He was banished during this time. Now, Domitian reigned from 81 to 96, but the evidence points to near the end of his reign when several cities throughout Asia Minor and elsewhere in the Roman world insisted on emperor worship. And statues were made to him. And people were to burn incense in his name as an act of worship. And, of course, God's people could not do that. He was called, Domitian was called Lord. Christians had one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore could not. Abide by that law. And so the worship of a beast, a human government, a human king or emperor, Gentile, is spoken of even in the first century. So we read in verse 4, Revelation 1, verse 4, John writes to seven churches which are in Asia, the Roman province of Asia, Asia Minor, western Turkey as we know it today, churches raised up by Paul and his assistants, Grace to you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, there were other churches in Asia Minor, as we know from Paul's epistles. But these seven, because of the number, the symbolic number seven, come to represent all of God's church throughout the world, primarily in the Middle East at that time. And he sends these letters, letters, a circular letter, or separate letters to the angels of the churches. The angels of the churches or the messengers who were probably the local pastors who in turn on the Sabbath would read the letter from John. And this would include the book of Revelation. John's purpose is in writing is to warn the churches to remain pure despite the many pressing threats of the day. 
false teaching, spiritual complacency, compromise with pagan ways, all mentioned in the letters to the seven churches. God's people began to get comfortable with the world, too comfortable, and it was causing trouble and apostasy. And so John writes to encourage believers who are being punished for their faith and others who are growing complacent, demonstrating God's power through Jesus Christ against the powers of evil. Revelation exhorts the churches to remain faithful to the one who is sovereign over history that will one day bring forth a new heaven and a new earth. Let's look at verse 19. This is the key to the whole book. Revelation 1.19, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And this night neatly divides the book of Revelation into its three parts. The opening chapter <clears throat> deals with the things that John saw, the vision of the Son of Man as judge. Then he was to write about the things which are. Those were the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And then he was to write about the things which shall be hereafter. That's from chapter 4 to 22. Three-part division of the book. So let me tell you a little bit more about apocalyptic literature. The book of Revelation seems stranger to us than it did to the first century Jewish readers. Jewish and Gentile, that part of the world... You see, there was an era between 200 B.C. to 100 A.D., about 300 years, when there were many books like, somewhat like Revelation were written in the Jewish world. They were known as apocalyptic literature, or sometimes just called apocalyptic. And the period in which this apocalyptic literature flourished was a difficult time in Jewish history. They were looking forward to the Messiah to appear and to sit on his throne of David. They restore the glory that Israel once had under David and Solomon, but it didn't happen. They were ruled over by four great Gentile powers, Babylon, Persia, Medo-Persia, Greco-Macedonia, and then Rome. But they kept writing about a golden age to come in which the throne of David would be restored. Restored, And all of God's promises would be fulfilled with the arrival of a Messiah. And the apocalyptic writings claim to be the prophetic promise that despite appearances, God's kingdom was still coming. Now, John writes this book of Revelation as part of that genre, but a little twist to it, biblical, apocalyptic, because it's based on the Old Testament prophecies, as I will tell you in another couple of minutes. So it's well-placed as the last book of our Bible. <clears throat> it presents the culmination of biblical themes and prophecy. It tells the end of the conflict between good and evil and the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ. The visions include illustrations and symbolism from both the Old and New Testaments. The only other biblical apocalyptic book in the Bible that is of the same nature, of course, is the book of Daniel. You ever wonder why we always match the prophecies of Daniel and see them fulfilled in Revelation? Our literature does that. It's because Daniel is of this kind of literature. And in Daniel, as well as in Revelation, you have a son of man appear who is to receive God's everlasting kingdom. At the same time, John's visions agree with the theology of the New Testament epistles by men like Peter and Paul, which covers the redemption of God's people through the blood of Christ. And that's covered in this book as well, Revelation. The author, the Apostle John, frequently refers to Christ as one like the Son of Man. God and his messengers called Ezekiel the Son of Man. But the title grew to mean a Savior anointed by God, the Messiah. And in the New Testament, Son of Man is the only title that Jesus applies to himself in the Gospels. Son of Man. The Jews of his day came to understand this title as a claim to be that foretold Messiah 
who would deliver Israel. Babylon is mentioned in several of John's visions. So while the city of Babylon destroyed Jerusalem in 587, the Jews of the Roman Empire began to call Rome by the name of Babylon after Jerusalem's desolation by the Roman forces in A.D. 70. The second utter destruction of Jerusalem, this time by the Romans. And so they began to call the Romans Babylon. And that's why in the book you have the mention of Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. So it's a symbolic name for Rome. The Bible's prediction concerning the end times agree that Jesus Christ will return after the rule of rebellion, destruction, and lawlessness on the earth. Let's go to Daniel 7, 23. Daniel 7, 23. Daniel 7, 23. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. 24. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the rest, and he shall subdue three kings. Daniel seven twenty-five, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given to his hand until a time, times, and dividing of times. And that phrase is reused in the book of Revelation. 27. In the kingdom, in the dominion, in the greatness of the kingdom, under the whole heaven, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This prophecy from Daniel finds its fulfillment in Revelation Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But before this happens, there will be great figures who will lead into apostasy and self-worship. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul is trying to correct a new church who misunderstood, thinking the day of the Lord had already come. And he says, no, not yet. This is what's going to have to happen first. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us. Yeah, Paul had forged letters circulating, or forged letters were circulating, claiming to have come from Paul, and he denies them, renounces them, saying the day of Christ is at hand, saying that the day of the Lord had already come. Let no man deceive you, verse 3, by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself, Above all that is called God, he alone is the God, or that is worship, so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's what he claims, at least. Well, that event will yet happen. We will see that if we live to that time. As the Messianic Son of Man, Jesus Christ will destroy these rulers who dishonor God and will reign over an everlasting kingdom of God's saints. So the nature of the book of Revelation is it's a central terminal where all the great trunk lines of the prophetic word converge, like an old-fashioned central train station where lines from all over the country meet together. Today we would say one of these larger airports like Atlanta, from all over the country, they come into this one central place. 
And so all these great prophecies find their culmination in the book of Revelation and their final fulfillment. And so this book is to be understood for these reasons. It is an unveiling, a revelation, a making known. Secondly, its promises, it promises blessings to those. Let's go to chapter 1 of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Revelation 1, 3. Blessed is he that reads, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keeps those things that are written therein, for the time is at hand. It promises a beatitude, a blessing, to those who read, hear, and keep its words. It's intended to be understood. For those who were here last year, you might recall my sermon I gave that feast, Revelation Beatitudes. There are seven of these in the book, and I covered them in that sermon. A third reason this book is to be understood, it's not sealed, as we read earlier. It's not sealed. Fourth reason, the simple key is furnished to understand the book, and that's verse 19 of chapter 1 that we read a few minutes ago. And fifth reason, the apocalyptic symbols of prophecy, the vehicles of interpretation, are found elsewhere in the Bible, which in turn furnishes the commentary on this crowning book of consummation. The figures, the symbols of this book come from elsewhere within divine revelation. God's word interprets itself. And so a comparative study of these other lines of prophecy will acquaint us with these symbols. So the interpretation depends on our understanding how these symbols are used throughout the Bible. Most of John's images are taken from the Old Testament. And this is stunning. I did not know this until I really began to look into the book many years ago. The book of Revelation contains over 500 allusions or references to the Old Testament. I have a list which I make available to my students where it goes through every verse of Revelation in order from chapter 1 to 22 and where those verses are referred to in the Old Testament books. It's a remarkable study to go through over 500 And some of these references to the Old Testament speak in the same language as Revelation. In others, Revelation merely borrows a phrase or motif to develop in a new area. So that distinction should be kept in mind when we study these Old Testament references. So, we have great prophetic themes that come to their head in this book, this consummation. Let me give you a short list, and I'll go through them fairly quickly. First of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was prophesied all through the Old Testament, many, many hundreds of messianic prophecies. But in Revelation, he is seated at God's throne. He has future triumph over evil. He, has, he conducts the redemption of the earth, the destruction of the ungodly, the establishment of his earthly kingdom. All that's consummated in this book. His kingdom rule and ministry in the eternal state find their grand fulfillment. Secondly, we have the church that Jesus himself first mentioned in Matthew. The word church only occurs three times in the Gospels, and it's all in the book of Matthew from the words of Christ. And in the book of Revelation, you have chapters 2 and 3, which goes through those seven churches. The times of the Gentiles from Daniel Again mentioned in Luke, finds an end in Revelation. Satan and demonic powers, which are mentioned in Isaiah and Ezekiel, find fulfillment. The man of sin, we read a little bit about, again, final fulfillment. The false prophet, the great tribulation, which is first mentioned in Deuteronomy. Then later in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, comes to a head in Revelation. The devastation of the earth with the seals, trumpets, and plagues, the bulb plagues, all found in Revelation itself. The second coming of Christ, 
that Jesus himself first announced in the Gospels in Revelation. The resurrection of dead saints, first spoken of in Job and Isaiah and Daniel. We find that clearly laid out in chapter 20, Revelation. The marriage of the Lamb to his bride. Paul says, I have espoused you unto one Lord, one Master, Christ. Christ and his armies destroy the opposing combined armies of rebellious humans, talked of in Daniel. The millennial kingdom of Messiah over Israel and the world, spoken of in Isaiah 11. You know, our symbol, our seal. <clears throat> and Acts, the second and third resurrection and judgments, the final judgment of incorrigible sinners, the new heaven and the new earth. First mentioned in Isaiah. The eternal state, paradise, mentioned in the final two chapters of this book. These great covenants that God made with Abraham and David in the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied all come to a consummation in this book. Let's go to Revelation 21, verse 5. Some think that God has walked away from this planet because of its evil. It's out of control. There's no more he can do. We're on our own. So make the best of it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's not... The point of view of the Bible. Look at Revelation 21.5. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Remember how Acts talks about the times of restitution? I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these things are true and faithful. You can bank on them. God's going to make everything new. He's not done with us yet. And that's the hopeful message of this final book of our Bible. The story of the Bible is the story of the way our sovereign and loving God is making everything new. The sin of the first man, Adam, not only brought death and by example to every human being, but it subjected the entire creation to frustration and the bondage to decay. Go to Romans 8. <clears throat> Romans 8, this was not God's original plan, but because of sin, this is what we created. Romans 8, 20 and 21. God created a perfect world, but Adam and Eve chose another course. They listened to that fallen cherub, and they chose to disobey God, and it brought about a curse on the land, which seems to have extended throughout the whole universe. Creatures that were peaceful, who lived in harmony, began to eat each other, alive, and people died, and continued to die for these 6,000 years. It wasn't the way God intended it. So Romans 8, 20, verse says, verse 20, For the creature, the creation, was made subject to vanity, futility, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Yeah, God let it go its course. He warned them this would happen, and so it's happened. And yet, he says, there's still hope. Because, verse 21, the creature... Creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption, decay, to the glorious liberty of the children of God. The bondage the universe is enslaved to, the law of entropy, second law of thermodynamics, everything runs down and goes haywire. God's going to restore all things new. God's grand plan of salvation extends every part of the universe that sin has damaged because 
Christ's sacrifice provides the way to clear that record. Let's go to Colossians 1, verse 20. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Colossians 1.20, Christ made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. That's why your Bible ends with that glorious picture of a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Because of the reconciliation that's been made possible but a sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Human beings, the crown of God's creation, are the special objects of God's reconciling work in Christ. But the plan of God will result in the end in nothing less than a new heavens and a new earth. God's plan to remedy the consequences of sin goes back to a promise he made to a man living in a very affluent world of ore of the Chaldees. Prosperous time, very cultured time. Man was going about his business, had no idea of the one true God. His culture worshipped many gods. And God said, I want you to leave here and travel hundreds of miles away to a land I will show you. A man named Abram. Genesis chapter 12. And he pulled up stakes along with his father and some other relatives, moved partway up the Fertile Crescent to Haran. And then when his father died, moved all the way into the land that we now call the Promised Land. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, get you out of your country, from your kindred, your father's house, to a land I will show you. And it says in Hebrews, he went not knowing where he was going. He was following God's lead in faith. And that's a remarkable story that Paul builds on in Romans 4. The faith of Abraham when he was a Gentile wasn't circumcised. Verse 2, And I will make of you a great nation and bless you and make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless you, curse him that curses you. But notice the last part of verse 3. And in you... So all families of the earth be blessed. Somehow, some way, Abraham was promised, you're going to start this process whereby all humanity will be blessed by God. Even though he was promised multiple seed, great nations would come from him, yet... Paul makes very clear in our in our New Testament that the one seed who enables all peoples, Gentile and Israelite alike, to enter into faith is that promise to Abraham. So the promise was particular and universal. He would be a great nation. All peoples on earth would be blessed through him. To that one seed who was Christ, Paul makes plain in his epistles. That nation, Israel, was born, so to speak, in Exodus from Egypt. as slaves who moved there hundreds of years during, earlier during a famine, but then became enslaved by pharaohs who did not know Joseph. And God raises a man named Moses to lead them out. And Moses works with these people for 40 years And he takes him up to the edge of the promised land. But because of Moses' own mistake, he's not permitted to go across the Jordan with them. But in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 25, Moses was inspired to give them the law of God to teach them the right way to live. But Moses had the sense, after working with these people for 40 years, seeing their stubbornness, their faults, their sinning, that they were not always going to be faithful to that promise. And so he writes in Deuteronomy 4, 25, When you shall beget children and children's children shall have remained long in the land and corrupt yourselves, and you begin to make a graven image or the likeness of anything, 
and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you. You will soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto you go over Jordan to, to possess it. Verse 26, you shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the nations. You'll be left few in numbers among the heathen, whether the Lord shall lead you. And there you will serve their gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But if from thence you shall seek the Lord your God, you shall find him. If you seek him with all your heart, with all your soul, when you are in tribulation. Do you ever notice that? This mention of the great tribulation and all these things come upon you, even in the latter days. If you turn to the Lord your God and shall be obedient to his voice, the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers. He swore to them. Moses predicted what was going to happen. The nation indeed did sin, did worship idols, did go into captivity. But he said, I will bring you back. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. Well, the... Part of the house of Judah came back under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, but that wasn't that final reunion. That didn't bring back all the 12 tribes. The Jews who are in Israel today, a largely secular state, that's not a final fulfillment. Those are not the 12 tribes. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. It's come to pass when all these things are come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all I command you this day, you and your children and all your heart and your soul, that then the Lord your God will turn your captivity, have compassion on you, return and gather you from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you be driven to the uttermost parts of heaven, from thence shall the Lord your God Gather you, and from thence he'll fetch you. He will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you will possess it. He will do you good and multiply you upon above your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, that is, conversion, in the heart of your seed, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God shall put all these curses on your enemies. And on them they hate you and persecuted you. And you'll return and obey the voice of the Lord to do all of his commandments which I command you this day. And the Lord your God will make you plenteous in every work of your hand. The fruit of your body, fruit of your cattle, fruit of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. And if you will hearken to the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and statutes which are written in the book of this law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's what the millennium is all about, brethren. God's reunion of these 12 tribes and the blessing to the Gentiles associated with them. But in the meantime, in the Old Testament, the sad story of Israel's unfaithfulness led to their banishment from the land. But God promises to restore them, as we just read. And when the Old Testament ends, the prophets noted a time of renewed hope when God would raise up his own son, a son of David, to sit on the throne of David to restore the 12 tribes back to their glorious days in faithfulness to the Almighty. And these promises often focus on Israel's settling securely in their land and prospering. When we go to Psalm 72, this Psalm 72 is all about this coming king who will reign. It's a prophetic psalm. Psalm 72, verse 8. He shall have dominion from sea to sea. From the river to the ends of the earth. Psalm 72, 
verse 8. And now verse 11, Yea, all kings will fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. That hasn't happened yet, but it will. Verse 11, and then Psalm seventy-two, seventeen: His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. Doesn't that sound like the promise to Abraham? Genesis 12. All nations shall call him blessed. That day is still coming. And that king is our savior today. It's going to extend to all nations, not just Israel. You see, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 assures us that when God makes a promise, he intends to keep it. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. And so all these great promises that God made in the Old Testament, if they have not yet been fulfilled, they must be fulfilled in order for God's word to be validated and upheld. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yea, they're yes, they will be kept. And in him, amen, to the glory of God by us. They are yes, not no, not maybe, they are yes. And so the early Christians rejoiced to live in the era when those prophecies already began to be fulfilled. And they began to use the terms, like Paul does in his epistles, about living in the last days. God in the last days has spoken to us by his Son, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. They knew the last days had already started, and they were heading up to a culmination. God was beginning to redeem his people. Through the sacrifice of Christ, the perfect Passover lamb, like he did with the Israelites in Egypt, so many millennia before. <clears throat> but God's people are now defined not by ethnic origin, but by faith in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. And Paul writes this letter to a largely Gentile church to say, Now you are part of this commonwealth, the commonwealth of Israel. Ephesians 2 and verse 11. <clears throat> Wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without the true God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made one, both one, and broken down that middle wall partition between us, between Jew and Gentile. Broken down. Fifteen. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained ordinances for the making himself of twain, one new man, so making peace, to reconcile both to God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. The new covenant people of God contain not just Israelites, but all peoples, potentially. And they're all assured of these same promises. Jesus, teaching about the kingdom, showed his power over the devil by the exorcisms he worked. And he instructed his saints, his people, to pray his model prayer, Father, your kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. We know it's not the end yet. It's on its way. This program is right on schedule. 
Let's go to Romans chapter 8, 15. And Christians who live in a world that persecutes them can't wait to see that age arrive. And we're having a foretaste of that now during this Feast of Tabernacles. Romans 8, 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We've been given a sonship. A sonship. We're now considered part of the family of God. Not yet born, but on our way to full birth. Romans 8, 23. And not only they, verse 23, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. You see, that sonship, to be complete, requires that we are transformed. And we are given spiritual bodies like Christ's. That's coming. In the meantime, we groan. Anybody groan when you got up this morning? A lot of groaning going along as you get older. So I'm finding. Well, keep on groaning. It's biblical. You're assured. It's okay to groan. But we can't wait until these bodies are changed for new bodies. It's coming. So the New Testament begins to talk about a second coming of Christ, his parousia, Greek word, parousia. He speaks of it in the Olivet Prophecy, Matthew 24, 29 to 31. And as he comes back, he will regather those people, Israelite, non-Israelite alike. Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened. The moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. And we will rise to meet Christ in the air at that time. This perusia is the blessed hope, as Paul speaks of it. So in the meantime, God's people are instructed to be faithful until it happens. Romans 13 Romans 13, starting in verse 11. Romans 13, 11, that knowing the time, that now it's high time to awake out of sleep. Wake up for the time. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Those of us who've been in God's church, attended feasts, as we heard from Mr. Lyons, 40, 50 years, we're only that much closer to our final redemption of our bodies. Not further, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light, walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness and chambering and wantonness, strife and evil. That describes the party spirit of our world. That's not fitting for Christians. Sleeping around. That's what chambering means. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That's our mission in the meantime. Make no provision for the flesh. God's agenda is consummating his redemptive plan. No man knows the day nor the hour. When Christ will be sent back, that's what he said when he was here. Even he didn't know, at least while he was on earth. That's to be determined by the Father. So in the meantime, we are to live in expectation of that to come. 1 Thessalonians 5, 
First Thessalonians five, verse four. First Thessalonians five, four. But you brethren, you're not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So therefore, let's not sleep as do others. Let us watch, be alert, and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. They that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we be awake or asleep, we should live together with him. So comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as you also do. So in the meantime, we are to be patient and faithful, as the book of James declares. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. We have bodies that are groaning, right? These bodies are not the bodies that will rise in the resurrection. Because of these verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 52. The great resurrection chapter, Paul writes, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. 1 Corinthians 15 and now 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep was a metaphor, euphemism for death. But we shall all be changed. Reminds me that years ago, <clears throat> one of our deacons put a sign on the mother's room door which said, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. <laughs> I thought that was very fitting. Verse 52, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, transformed to meet the Lord in the air, and ever thus be with the Lord, as we are told. Raised incorruptible, because only in such a life can we have fellowship with the Father and with Christ forever. That'll start a period called the millennium, a thousand years of Christ rules on this earth, beginning to restore it, bring back these promises from our Old Testament. So the New Testament focuses on the fate of humans at the consummation, but this consummation goes beyond humans. We're not the only thing God has made. But they've all been somehow damaged because of our sin. He's going to restore all things we've already read. What else does he mean by that? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> Romans 11th chapter talks about a shining future for ethnic Israelites but then in Romans 4.13, it goes a step further. Romans 4.13. Again, going back to the great promise to Abraham, Abraham, later, verse 13, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed, to the law, but to the righteousness of faith. Did you catch that? Heir of the world. That certainly is well beyond the borders of ancient Israel. There's a grander scheme being worked out with the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the new covenant. 
Humans will be given resurrected bodies. But what about the universe? God's going to restore all things. And so we get hints of what's going to happen. Second Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 10. The Apostle Peter, who in his last epistle, knowing that his time was short, includes this under inspiration. Second Peter 3 and verse 10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. That's apocalyptic. And the element shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Is that the end of it? Is that the way this ends? Final fireball. Verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hasting to the coming of a day of God, wherein the heavens, excuse me, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, Look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you be found of him in peace, without spot and without and, uh, and blameless, without spot and blameless. There is a restoration for all things. Go back to Romans 8. Remember how creation is groaning, yearning for something to happen, to restore it to its original glory? It's coming. Romans 8, 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. It's spoken of as if it were a human being waiting for something to happen. And that happening is the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him that subjected the same in hope. Because the creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption to the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain as if a woman in birth, together until now. Can we not look at what's going on around the world today and realize that this entire globe and all the universe is groaning and travailing in pain for something to happen, something to happen, and to restore it to unity, harmony, and blessing. Well, that day is coming. That's the restoration spoken of in prophecy. Climaxing his prophecy, John speaks of an image of a city. A city where people will live together in harmony. Because that's what you do in a city. You live together. It's called New Jerusalem. And who else is going to be there? Revelation 21, verse 1. Revelation 21, verse 1. The next to last chapter of our Bible. John, in vision, says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth. We're passed away. That's what Peter spoke of, right? We read that. But there will be no more seeing. For I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven, 
saying, Behold, the tabernacle, that is the dwelling place of God, is with men. He shall dwell with them, they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. That's the restoration of all things. All men dwelling with God in a new Jerusalem, in a new earth, in new heavens, restored fully to its glory. That's the consummation of biblical prophecy. It's going back to a reunion with God. That's what God intended all along. His tabernacle was a dwelling place that he inspired Moses and Aaron to build. He wanted to dwell with his people. He's always wanted to dwell with those he made in his own image. But we are the ones that kept pushing him away by our sin. Well, we've tasted the fruit of that lifestyle. What do you think? Is it it sweet or not? No, it's pretty sour, isn't it? Someday we're going to be back to where we belong, in harmony with the Almighty, restored with Him. God is fully in control of world events. He will direct them to the final consummation of all biblical prophecy. He promised to restore all things. And we're witnessing the progression of His program year by year. God's festivals anticipate this thrilling and satisfying consummation of the biblical saga.